0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Kristen Hughes. The Red House Mystery by A. A. Milne. Chapter 18 Guesswork. The inquest was at three o'clock. Thereafter, Antony could have no claim on the hospitality of the Red House. By ten o'clock his bag was packed and waiting to be taken to the George. To Bill, coming upstairs after a more prolonged breakfast, this early morning bustle was a little surprising. "'What's the hurry?' he asked. "'None. But we don't want to come back here after the inquest. Get your packing over now, and then we can have the morning to ourselves.' "'Right-o!' He turned to go to his room, and then came back again. "'I say—' Are we going to tell Cayley that we're staying at the George? You're not staying at the George, Bill. Not officially. You're going back to London. Oh! Yes. Ask Cayley to have your luggage sent in to Stanton, ready for you when you catch a train there after the inquest. You can tell him that you've got to see the Bishop of London at once. The fact that you are hurrying back to London to be confirmed— will make it seem more natural that I should resume my interrupted solitude at the George as soon as you have gone. "'Then where do I sleep to-night?' "'Officially, I suppose, in Fulham Place. Unofficially, I suspect, in my bed, unless they've got another spare room at the George. "'I've put your confirmation robe—I mean your pyjamas and brushes and things—in my bag, ready for you. "'Is there anything else you want to know?' "'No? Then go and pack.' and meet me at ten-thirty beneath the blasted oak or in the hall or somewhere. I want to talk and talk and talk, and I must have my Watson." "'Good,' said Bill, and went off to his room." An hour later, having communicated their official plans to Cayley, they wandered out together into the park. "'Well,' said Bill, as they sat down underneath a convenient tree, "'talk away.' "'I had many bright thoughts in my bath this morning,' began Antony the brightest one of all, was that we were being damned fools, and working at this thing from the wrong end altogether. Well, that's helpful. Of course, it's very hampering being a detective, when you don't know anything about detecting, and when nobody knows that you're doing detection, and you can't have people up to cross-examine them, and you have neither the energy nor the means to make proper inquiries. And, in short—' when you're doing the whole thing in a thoroughly amateur, haphazard way. "'For amateurs I don't think we're doing it all badly,' protested Bill. "'No, not for amateurs. But if we had been professionals, I believe we should have gone at it from the other end—the Robert end. We've been wondering about Mark and Cayley all the time. Now let's wonder about Robert for a bit.' "'We know so little about him.' "'Well, Let's see what we do know. First of all, then, we know vaguely that he was a bad lot, the sort of brother who is hushed up in front of other people. Yes. We know that he announced his approaching arrival to Mark in a rather unpleasant letter, which I have in my pocket. Yes. And then, we know rather a curious thing. We know that Mark told you all that this black sheep was coming. Now, why did he tell you? Bill was thoughtful for a moment. "'I suppose,' he said slowly, "'that he knew we were bound to see him, and thought that the best way was to be quite frank about him.' "'But were you bound to see him? You were all away playing golf.' "'We were bound to see him if he stayed in the house that night.' "'Very well, then. That's one thing we've discovered. Mark knew that Robert was staying in the house that night.' Or shall we put it this way? He knew that there was no chance of getting Robert out of the house at once. Bill looked at his friend eagerly. Go on, he said. This is getting interesting. He also knew something else, went on Antony. He knew that Robert was bound to betray his real character to you as soon as you met him. He couldn't pass him off on you as just a travelled brother from the Dominions with perhaps a bit of an accent. He had to tell you at once, because you were bound to find out that Robert was a wastrel.' "'Yes, that's sound enough.' "'Well, now, doesn't it strike you that Mark made up his mind about all that rather quickly? "'How do you mean?' He got this letter at breakfast, he read it, and directly he had read it he began to confide in you all. That is to say—' In about one second he thought out the whole business and came to a decision—to two decisions. He considered the possibility of getting Robert out of the way before you came back, and decided that it was impossible. He considered the possibility of Robert's behaving like an ordinary, decent person in public, and decided that it was very unlikely. He came to those two decisions instantaneously, as he was reading the letter. Isn't that rather quick work?" Well, what's the explanation? Antony waited until he had refilled and lighted his pipe before answering. What's the explanation? Well, let's leave it for a moment and take another look at the two brothers, in conjunction this time with Mrs. Norbury. Mrs. Norbury? said Bill, surprised. Yes. Mark hoped to marry Miss Norbury. Now, if Robert really was a blot upon the family honor," Mark would want to do one of two things—either keep it from the Norbury's altogether, or else, if it had to come out, tell them himself before the news came to them indirectly. Well, he told them. But the funny thing is that he told them the day before Robert's letter came. Robert came and was killed, the day before yesterday, Tuesday. Mark told Mrs. Norbury about him on Monday. What do you make of that? Coincidence? said Bill, after careful thought. He'd always meant to tell her. His suit was prospering, and just before it was finally settled, he told her. That happened to be Monday. On Tuesday he got Robert's letter, and felt jolly glad that he'd told her in time. Well, it might be that. But it's rather a curious coincidence. And here is something which makes it very curious indeed. It only occurred to me in the bath this morning— inspiring place, a bathroom. Well, it's this. He told her on Monday morning, on his way to Middleston, in the car. Well? Well. Sorry, Tony, I'm dense this morning. In the car, Bill. And how near can the car get to Jallin's? About six hundred yards. Yes. And on his way to Middleston, on some business or other, "'Mark stops the car, walks six hundred yards down the hill to Jallans. says, "'Oh, by the way, Mrs. Norbury, I don't think I ever told you that I had a shady brother called Robert.' Walks six hundred yards up the hill again, gets into the car, and goes off to Middleston. "'Is that likely?' Bill frowned heavily. "'Yes, but I don't see what you're getting at. Likely or not, we know he did do it.' "'Of course he did.' All I mean is that he must have had some strong reason for telling Mrs. Norbury at once. And the reason, I suggest, is that he knew on that morning—Monday morning, not Tuesday—that Robert was coming to see him, and had to be in first with the news. "'But—but—' And that would explain the other point—his instantaneous decision at breakfast to tell you all about his brother. It wasn't instantaneous.' He knew on Monday that Robert was coming, and decided then that you would all have to know. Then how do you explain the letter? Well, let's have a look at it. Antony took the letter from his pocket and spread it out on the grass between them. Mark, your loving brother is coming to see you to-morrow, all the way from Australia. I give you warning so that you will be able to conceal your surprise, but not, I hope, your pleasure. "'Expect him at three, or thereabouts.' "'No date mentioned, you see,' said Antony. "'Just to "'But he got this on Tuesday.' "'Did he?' "'Well, he read it out to us on Tuesday.' "'Oh, yes, he read it out to you.' Bill read the letter again, and then turned it over and looked at the back of it. The back of it had nothing to say to him. "'What about the postmark?' He asked. We haven't got the envelope, unfortunately. And you think that he got this letter on Monday? I'm inclined to think so, Bill. Anyhow, I think, I feel almost certain, that he knew on Monday that his brother was coming. Is that going to help us much? No, it makes it more difficult. There's something rather uncanny about it all. I don't understand it. He was silent for a little, and then added. I wonder if the inquest is going to help us.' "'What about last night? I'm longing to hear what you make of that. Have you been thinking it out at all?' "'Last night,' said Antony, thoughtfully to himself. "'Yes. Last night wants some explaining.' Bill waited hopefully for him to explain. What, for instance, had Antony been looking for in the cupboard? "'I think.' began Antony slowly, that after last night we must give up the idea that Mark has been killed—killed, I mean, by Cayley. I don't believe anybody would go to so much trouble to hide a suit of clothes when he had a body on his hands. The body would seem so much more important. I think we may take it now that the clothes are all that Cayley had to hide. "'But why not have kept them in the passage?' He was frightened of the passage. Miss Norris knew about it. Well, then, in his own bedroom, or even in Mark's. For all you or I or anybody knew, Mark might have had two brown suits. He probably had, I should think. Probably. But I doubt if that would reassure Cayley. The brown suit hid a secret, and therefore the brown suit had to be hidden. We all know that in theory the safest hiding place is the most obvious but in practice very few people have the nerve to risk it." Bill looked rather disappointed. "'Then we just come back to where we were,' he complained. Mark killed his brother, and Cayley helped him to escape through the passage, either in order to compromise him, or because there was no other way out of it. And he helped him by telling a lie about his brown suit.' Antony smiled at him in genuine amusement. "'Bad luck, Bill,' he said sympathetically. "'There's only one murder, after all. I'm awfully sorry about it. It was my fault for—' "'Shut up, you ass! You know I didn't mean that!' "'Well, you seemed awfully disappointed.' Bill said nothing for a little, and then, with a sudden laugh, confessed. "'It was so exciting yesterday,' he said apologetically. "'And we seem to be just getting there and discovering the most wonderful things. And now—' "'And now?' "'Well, it's so much more ordinary.' Antony gave a shout of laughter. "'Ordinary!' he cried. "'Ordinary! Well, I'm dashed! Ordinary! If only one thing would happen in an ordinary way, we might do something, but everything is ridiculous.' Bill brightened up again. Ridiculous! How? Every way. Take those ridiculous clothes we found last night. You can explain the brown suit, but why the underclothes? You can explain the underclothes in some absurd way if you like. You can say that Mark always changed his underclothes whenever he interviewed anybody from Australia, but why, in that case, my dear Watson, why didn't he change his collar? His collar? said Bill in amazement. His collar, Watson. I don't understand. And it's all so ordinary, scoffed Antony. Sorry, Tony, I didn't mean that. Tell me about the collar. Well, well, that's all. There was no collar in the bag last night shirt, socks, tie, everything except a collar. Why? Was that what you were looking for in the cupboard? said Bill, eagerly. "'Of course. Why no collar?' I said. For some reason Cayley considered it necessary to hide all Mark's clothes—not just the suit, but everything which he was wearing, or supposed to be wearing, at the time of the murder. But he hadn't hidden the collar. Why? Had he left it out by mistake? So I looked in the cupboard. It wasn't there. Had he left it out on purpose? If so— Why, and where was it? Naturally, I began to say to myself, Where have I seen a collar lately? A collar all by itself. And I remembered, What, Bill? Bill frowned heavily to himself and shook his head. Don't ask me, Tony. I can't. By Jove! He threw up his head. In the basket in the office bedroom! Exactly. But is that the one? The one that goes with the rest of the clothes? I don't know. Where else can it be? But if so, why send the collar, quite casually, to the wash in the ordinary way, and take immense trouble to hide everything else? Why, why, why? Bill bit hard at his pipe, but could think of nothing to say. Anyhow, said Antony, getting up restlessly, I'm certain of one thing— Mark knew on the Monday that Robert was coming here. End of chapter eighteen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Kristen Hughes. The Red House Mystery by A. A. Milne. Chapter 19. The Inquest. The coroner, having made a few commonplace remarks as to the terrible nature of the tragedy which they had come to investigate that afternoon, proceeded to outline the case to the jury. Witnesses would be called to identify the deceased as Robert Ablett the brother of the owner of the Red House, Mark Ablett. It would be shown that he was something of a 'er ne'er-do-well, who had spent most of his life in Australia, and that he had announced, in what might almost be called a threatening letter, his intention of visiting his brother that afternoon. There would be evidence of his arrival, of his being shown into the scene of the tragedy, a room in the Red House, commonly called the Office, And of his brother's entrance into that room. The jury would have to form their own opinion as to what happened there. But whatever happened, happened almost instantaneously. Within two minutes of Mark Ablett's entrance, as would be shown in the evidence, a shot was heard. And when, perhaps five minutes later, the room was forced open, the dead body of Robert Ablett was found stretched upon the floor. As regards Mark Ablett, Nobody had seen him from the moment of his going into the room, but evidence would be called to show that he had enough money on him, at the time, to take him to any other part of the country, and that a man answering to his description had been observed on the platform of Stanton Station, apparently waiting to catch the 3.55 up train to London. As the jury would realise, such evidence of identity was not always reliable. Missing men had a way of being seen in a dozen different places at once. In any case, there was no doubt that for the moment Mark Ablett had disappeared. "'Seems a sound man,' whispered Antony to Bill. "'Doesn't talk too much.' Antony did not expect to learn much from the evidence. He knew the facts of the case so well by now. But he wondered if Inspector Birch had developed any new theories." If so, they would appear in the coroner's examination, for the coroner would certainly have been coached by the police as to the important facts to be extracted from each witness. Bill was the first to be put through it. "'Now about this letter, Mr. Beverly,' he was asked when his chief evidence was over, "'did you see it at all?' "'I didn't see the actual writing. I saw the back of it. Mark was holding it up when he told us about his brother.' "'You don't know what was in it, then?' Bill had a sudden shock. He had read the letter only that morning. He knew quite well what was in it. But it wouldn't do to admit this. And then, just as he was about to perjure himself, he remembered. Antony had heard Cayley telling the inspector. "'I knew afterwards. I was told. But Mark didn't read it out at breakfast.' You gathered, however, that it was an unwelcome letter? Oh, yes. You would say that Mark was frightened by it? Not frightened. Sort of bitter and resigned. Sort of, oh, Lord, here we are again. There was a titter here and there. The coroner smiled and tried to pretend that he hadn't. Thank you, Mr. Beverley. The next witness was summoned by the name of Andrew Amos and Antony looked up with interest, wondering who he was. "'He lives at the inner lodge,' whispered Bill to him. All that Amos had to say was that a stranger had passed by his lodge at a little before three that afternoon, and had spoken to him. He had seen the body and recognized it as the man. "'What did he say?' "'Is this right for the red house? Or something like that, sir?' "'What did you say?' I said, "'This is the Red House. Who do you want to see?' He was a bit rough-looking, you know, sir, and I didn't know what he was doing there. "'Well?' "'Well, sir,' he said, "'is Mr. Mark Ablett at home?' It doesn't sound much put like that, sir. But I didn't care about the way he said it, so I got in front of him like and said, "'What do you want, eh?' And he gave a sort of chuckle and said, "'I want to see my dear brother Mark.' Well, then I took a closer look at him, and I see that p'raps he might be his brother. So I said, if you'll follow the drive, sir, you'll come to the house. Of course, I can't say if Mark Ablett's at home. And he gave a sort of nasty laugh again, and said, fine place Mr. Mark Ablett's got here. Plenty of money to spend, eh? Well, then I had another look at him, sir, because gentlemen don't talk like that. And if he was Mr. Ablett's brother, but before I could make up my mind, he laughed and went on. "'That's all I can tell you, sir.' Andrew Amos stepped down and moved away to the back of the room. Nor did Antony take his eyes off him until he was assured that Amos intended to remain there until the inquest was over. "'Who's Amos talking to now?' he whispered to Bill. "'Parsons—one of the gardeners. He's at the outside lodge on the Stanton Road.' They're all here today, sort of holiday for him. "'I wonder if he's giving evidence, too,' thought Antony. He was. He followed Amos. He had been at work on the lawn in front of the house, and had seen Robert Ablett arrive. He didn't hear the shot, not to notice. He was a little hard of hearing. He had seen a gentleman arrive about five minutes after Mr. Robert. "'Can you see him in the court now?' asked the coroner. Parsons looked round slowly. Antony caught his eye and smiled. "'That's him,' said Parsons, pointing. Everybody looked at Antony. "'That was about five minutes afterwards?' "'About that, sir. "'Did anybody come out of the house before this gentleman's arrival?' "'No, sir. That is to say, I didn't see him.' Stevens followed. She gave her evidence much as she had given it to the inspector. Nothing new was brought out by her examination. Then came Elsie. As the reporters scribbled down what she had overheard, they added in brackets, SENSATION, for the first time that afternoon. "'How soon after you heard this did the shot come?' asked the coroner. "'Almost at once, sir.' "'A minute?' "'I couldn't really say, sir. It was all so quick.' "'Were you still in the hall?' "'Oh, no, sir. I was just outside Mrs. Stevens' room, the housekeeper, sir.' "'You didn't think of going back to the hall to see what had happened?' "'Oh, no, sir. I just went into Mrs. Stevens, and she said, "'Oh, what was that? Frightened like. And I said, "'That was in the house, Mrs. Stevens, that was. "'Just like something going off it was.' "'Thank you,' said the coroner. There was another emotional disturbance in the room, as Cayley went into the witness-box. Not sensation this time, but an eager and, as it seemed to Antony, sympathetic interest. Now they were getting to grips with the drama. He gave his evidence carefully, unemotionally, the lies, with the same slow deliberation as the truth. Antony watched him intently wondering what it was about him which had this odd sort of attractiveness for antony who knew that he was lying and lying as he believed not for mark's sake but his own yet could not help sharing some of that general sympathy with him was mark ever in possession of a revolver asked the coroner not to my knowledge i think i should have known if he had been were you alone with him all that morning Did he talk about this visit of Robert's at all? I didn't see very much of him in the morning. I was at work in my room, and outside, and so on. We lunched together, and he talked of it then a little. In what terms? Well, he hesitated, and then went on. I can't think of a better word than peevishly. Occasionally, he said, what do you think he wants, or why couldn't he have stayed where he was? or I don't like the tone of this letter. Do you think he means trouble? He talked rather in that kind of way. Did he express his surprise that his brother should be in England? I think he was always afraid that he would turn up one day. Yes. You didn't hear any conversation between the brothers when they were in the office together? No. I happened to go into the library just after Mark had gone in, and I was there all the time. "'Was the library door open?' "'Oh, yes.' "'Did you see or hear the last witness at all?' "'No.' "'If anybody had come out of the office while you were in the library, would you have heard it?' "'I think so, unless they had come out very quietly on purpose.' "'Would you call Mark a hasty-tempered man?' Cayley considered this carefully before answering. "'Hasty-tempered, yes,' he said, but not violent-tempered. "'Was he fairly athletic, active and quick?' "'Active and quick, yes. Not particularly strong. "'Yes. One question more. Was Mark in the habit of carrying any considerable sum of money about with him?' "'Yes. He always had one one-hundred-pound note on him, and perhaps ten or twenty pounds as well.' "'Thank you, Mr. Cayley.' Cayley went back heavily to his seat. "'Damn it!' said Antony to himself. "'Why do I like the fellow?' "'Antony Gillingham.' Again the eager interest of the room could be felt. Who was this stranger who had got mixed up in the business so mysteriously? Antony smiled at Bill and stepped up to give his evidence. He explained how he came to be staying at the George at Waldheim how he had heard that the Red House was in the neighbourhood, how he had walked over to see his friend Beverly, and had arrived just after the tragedy. Thinking it over afterwards, he was fairly certain that he had heard the shot, but it had not made any impression on him at the time. He had come to the house from the Waldheim end, and consequently had seen nothing of Robert Ablett, who had been a few minutes in front of him. From this point his evidence coincided with Cayley's. You and the last witness reached the front windows together and found them shut? Yes. You pushed them in and came to the body? Of course, you had no idea whose body it was? No. Did Mr. Cayley say anything? He turned the body over, just so as to see the face, and when he saw it he said, Thank God. Again the reporters wrote sensation. Did you understand what he meant by that? I asked him who it was, and he said that it was Robert Ablett. Then he explained that he was afraid at first it was the cousin with whom he lived, Mark. Yes, did he seem upset? Very much so at first, less when he found that it wasn't Mark. There was a sudden snigger from a nervous gentleman in the crowd at the back of the room, and the coroner put on his glasses and stared sternly in the direction from which it came. The nervous gentleman, hastily decided that the time had come to do up his bootlace. The coroner put down his glasses and continued, "'Did anybody come out of the house while you were coming up the drive?' "'No. "'Thank you, Mr. Gillingham.' He was followed by Inspector Birch. The inspector, realising that this was his afternoon, and that the eyes of the world were upon him, produced a plan of the house and explained the situation of the different rooms. The plan was then handed to the jury. Inspector Birch, so he told the world, had arrived at the Red House at 4.42 p.m. on the afternoon in question. He had been received by Mr. Matthew Cayley, who had made a short statement to him, and he had then proceeded to examine the scene of the crime. The French windows had been forced from outside. The door leading into the hall was locked. He had searched the room thoroughly and had found no traces of a key. In the bedroom leading out of the office he had found an open window. There were no marks on the window, but it was a low one, and as he found from experiment, quite easy to step out of without touching it with the boots. A few yards outside the window a shrubbery began. There were no recent footmarks outside the window, but the ground was in a very hard condition owing to the absence of rain. In the shrubbery, however, he found several twigs on the ground, recently broken off together with other evidence that some body had been forcing its way through. He had questioned everybody connected with the estate, and none of them had been into the shrubbery recently. By forcing a way through the shrubbery it was possible for a person to make a detour of the house, and get to the Stanton end of the park without ever being in sight of the house itself. He had made inquiries about the deceased. Deceased had left for Australia some fifteen years ago, owing to some financial trouble at home. Deceased was not well spoken of in the village from which he and his brother had come. Deceased and his brother had never been on good terms, and the fact that Mark Ablett had come into money had been a cause of great bitterness between them. It was shortly after this that Robert had left for Australia. He had made inquiries at Stanton Station. It had been market-day at Stanton, and the station had been more full of arrivals than usual. Nobody had particularly noticed the arrival of Robert Ablett. There had been a good many passengers by the 210 train that afternoon—the train by which Robert had undoubtedly come from London. A witness, however, would state that he noticed a man resembling Mark Ablett at the station at 3.53 p.m. that afternoon, and this man caught the 3.55 up train to town." There was a pond in the ground of the Red House. He had dragged this, but without result. Antony listened to him carelessly, thinking his own thoughts all the time. Medical evidence followed, but there was nothing to be got from that. He felt so close to the truth. At any moment something might give his brain the one little hint which it wanted. Inspector Birch was just pursuing the ordinary. Whatever else this case was— It was not ordinary. There was something uncanny about it. John Borden was giving evidence. He was on the up-platform, seeing a friend off by the three-fifty-five on Tuesday afternoon. He had noticed a man on the platform, with coat-collar turned up and a scarf round his chin. He had wondered why the man should do this on such a hot day. The man seemed to be trying to escape observation. Directly the train came in. He hurried into a carriage, and so on. "'There's always a John Borden at every murder-case,' said Antony to himself. "'Have you ever seen Mark Ablett?' "'Once or twice, sir.' "'Was it he?' "'I never got a good look at him, sir, what with his collar turned up, and the scarf and all. But directly I heard of the sad affair, and that Mr. Ablett was missing. I said to Mrs. Borden—' Now, I wonder if that was Mr. Ablett I saw at the station. So then we talked it over and decided that I ought to come and tell Inspector Birch. It was just Mr. Ablett's height, sir. Antony went on with his thoughts. The coroner was summing up. The jury, he said, had now heard all the evidence and would have to decide what had happened in that room between the two brothers. How had the deceased met his death? the medical evidence would probably satisfy them that Robert Ablett had died from the effects of a bullet wound in the head. Who had fired that bullet? If Robert Ablett had fired it himself, no doubt they would bring in a verdict of suicide. But if this had been so, where was the revolver which had fired it? And what had become of Mark Ablett? If they disbelieved in this possibility of suicide, what remained? Accidental death, justifiable homicide, and murder. Could the deceased have been killed accidentally? It was possible. But then would Mark Ablett have run away? The evidence that he had run away from the scene of the crime was strong. His cousin had seen him go into the room. The servant, Elsie Wood, had heard him quarrelling with his brother in the room. The door had been locked from the inside. And there were signs that outside the open window some one had pushed his way very recently through the shrubbery. Who, if not Mark? They would have then to consider whether he would have run away if he had been guiltless of his brother's death. No doubt innocent people lost their heads sometimes. It was possible that if it were proved afterwards that Mark Ablett had shot his brother, it might also be proved that he was justified in so doing." and that when he ran away from his brother's corpse he had really nothing to fear at the hands of the law. In this connection he need hardly remind the jury that they were not the final tribunal, and that if they found Mark Ablett guilty of murder it would not prejudice his trial in any way, if and when he was apprehended. The jury could consider their verdict. They considered it. They announced that the deceased had died as the result of a bullet wound. And that the bullet had been fired by his brother Mark Ablett. Bill turned round to Antony at his side, but Antony was gone. Across the room he saw Andrew Amos and Parsons going out of the door together, and Antony was between them. End of chapter nineteen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Kristen Hughes. The Red House Mystery by A. A. Milne. Chapter Twenty. Mr. Beverly is Tactful. The inquest had been held at the Lamb at Stanton. At Stanton, Robert Ablett was to be buried next day. Bill waited about outside for his friend, wondering where he had gone. Then, realizing that Cayley would be coming out to his car directly, and that a farewell talk with Cayley would be a little embarrassing, he wandered round to the yard at the back of the inn, lit a cigarette, and stood surveying a torn and weather-beaten poster on the stable wall. Grand theatrical enter, it announced to take place on Wednesday, December." Bill smiled to himself as he looked at it, for the part of Joe, a loquacious postman, had been played by William B. Beville, as the remnants of the poster still maintained. And he had been much less loquacious than the author had intended, having forgotten his words completely. But it had all been great fun. And then he stopped smiling for there would be no more fun now at the Red House. "'Sorry to keep you waiting,' said the voice of Antony behind him. "'My old friends Amos and Parsons insisted on giving me a drink.' He slipped his hand into the crook of Bill's arm and smiled happily at him. "'Why were you so keen about them?' asked Bill, a little resentfully. "'I couldn't think where on earth you had got to.' Antony didn't say anything he was staring at the poster. When did this happen? he asked. What? Antony waved to the poster. Oh, that? Last Christmas. It was rather fun. Antony began to laugh to himself. Were you good? Rotten. I don't profess to be an actor. Mark good? Oh, rather. He loves it. Rev. Henry Stutters, Mr. Matthew K, read Antony. Was that our friend Cayley? Yes. Any good? Well, much better than I expected. He wasn't keen, but Mark made him. Miss Norris wasn't playing, I see. My dear Tony, she's a professional. Of course she wasn't. Antony laughed again. A great success, was it? Oh, rather. "'I'm a fool, and a damned fool,' Antony announced solemnly. "'And a damned fool,' he said again under his breath as he led Bill away from the poster and out of the yard into the road. "'And a damned fool, even now!' He broke off and then asked suddenly, "'Did Mark ever have much trouble with his teeth?' "'He went to the dentist a good deal. But what on earth?' Antony laughed a third time. "'What luck!' he chuckled. "'But how do you know?' "'We go to the same man. "'Mark recommended him to me. "'Cartwright in Wimpole Street.' "'Cartwright in Wimpole Street,' repeated Antony thoughtfully. "'Yes, I can remember that. "'Cartwright in Wimpole Street. "'Did Cayley go to him too, by any chance?' "'I expect so.' "'Oh, yes, I know he did. "'But what on earth?' What was Mark's general health like? Did he see a doctor much? Hardly at all, I should think. He did a lot of early morning exercises which were supposed to make him bright and cheerful at breakfast. They didn't do that, but they seemed to keep him pretty fit. Tony, I wish you'd Antony held up a hand and hushed him into silence. One last question, he said. Was Mark fond of swimming? No, he hated it. I don't believe he could swim. Tony, are you mad, or am I? Or is this a new game? Antony squeezed his arm. Dear old Bill, he said, It's a game. What a game. And the answer is Cartwright in Wimpole Street. They walked in silence for half a mile or so along the road to Waldheim. Bill tried two or three times to get his friend to talk. But Antony had only grunted in reply. He was just going to make another attempt, when Antony came to a sudden stop and turned to him anxiously. "'I wonder if you'd do something for me,' he said, looking at him with some doubt. "'What sort of thing?' "'Well, it's really dashed important. It's just the one thing I want to know.' Bill was suddenly enthusiastic again. "'I say, have you really found it all out?' Antony nodded. "'At least I'm very nearly there, Bill. "'It's just this one thing I want to know. "'It means you're going back to Stanton. "'Well, we haven't come far. "'It won't take you long. "'Do you mind?' "'My dear Holmes, I am at your service.' "'Antony gave him a smile and was silent for a little, thinking. "'Is there another inn at Stanton, fairly close to the station?' "'The plough and horses.' "'Just at the corner where the road goes up to the station. Is that the one you mean?' "'That would be the one. I suppose you could do with a drink, couldn't you?' "'Rather,' said Bill, with a grin. "'Good. Then have one at the Plough and Horses. Have two, if you like, and talk to the landlord or landlady or whoever serves you. I want you to find out if anybody stayed there on Monday night.' "'Robert?' said Bill eagerly. I didn't say Robert," said Antony, smiling. I just want you to find out if they had a visitor who slept there on Monday night—a stranger. If so, then any particulars you can get of him, without letting the landlord know that you are interested. Leave it to me," broke in Bill. I know just what you want. Don't assume that it was Robert, or anybody else. Let them describe the man to you. Don't influence them unconsciously by suggesting that he was short or tall, or anything of that sort. Just get them talking. If it's the landlord, you'd better stand him a drink or two. "'Right you are,' said Bill confidently. "'Where do I meet you again?' "'Probably at the George. If you get there before me, you can order dinner for eight o'clock. Anyhow, we'll meet at eight, if not before.' "'Good.' He nodded to Antony and strode off back to Stanton again. Antony stood watching him, with a little smile at his enthusiasm. Then he looked round slowly, as if in search of something. Suddenly he saw what he wanted. Twenty yards farther on, a lane wandered off to the left, and there was a gate a little way up on the right-hand side of it. Antony walked to the gate, filling his pipe as he went. Then he lit his pipe, sat on the gate, and took his head in his hands. Now then. He said to himself, "Let's begin at the beginning." It was nearly eight o'clock when William Beverley, the famous sleuthhound, arrived, tired and dusty, at the George to find Antony cool and clean, standing bareheaded at the door, waiting for him. "Is dinner ready?" were Bill's first words. "Yes." Then I'll just have a wash. Lord, I'm tired. I never ought to have asked you," said Antony penitently. That's all right. I shan't be a moment. Halfway up the stairs he turned round and asked, Am I in your room? Yes. Do you know the way? Yes. Start carving, will you, and order lots of beer. He disappeared round the top of the staircase. Antony went slowly in. When the first edge of his appetite had worn off, and he was able to spare a little time between the mouthfuls, Bill gave an account of his adventures. The landlord of the plough and horses had been sticky, decidedly sticky. Bill had been unable at first to get anything out of him. But Bill had been tactful. Lord bless you how tactful he had been. He kept on about the inquest, and what a queer affair it had been, and so on, and how there had been an inquest in his wife's family once which he seemed rather proud about. And I kept saying, Pretty business, I suppose, just now what? And then he'd say, "Midlin," and go on again about Susan. That was the one that had the inquest. He talked about it as if it were a disease. And then I'd try again and say, Slack times I expect just now, eh? And he'd say, "Midlin" again, and then it was time to offer him another drink and I didn't seem to be getting much nearer. But I got him at last. I asked him if he knew John Borden. He was the man who said he'd seen Mark at the station. Well, he knew all about Borden, and after he told me all about Borden's wife's family, and how one of them had been burnt to death. After you with the beer. Thanks. Well, then I said carelessly that it must be very hard to remember anybody whom you had just seen once, so as to identify him afterwards and he agreed that it would be middlin' hard. And then—' "'Give me three guesses,' interrupted Antony. "'You asked him if he remembered everybody who came to his inn?' "'That's it. Bright, wasn't it?' "'Brilliant. And what was the result?' "'The result was a woman.' "'A woman?' said Antony eagerly. "'A woman,' said Bill impressively of course i thought it was going to be robert so did you didn't you but it wasn't it was a woman came quite late on monday night in a car driving herself went off early next morning did he describe her yes she was midland midland tall midland age midland colour and so on doesn't help much does it but still a woman does that upset your theory antony shook his head "'No, Bill, not at all,' he said. "'You knew all the time? At least you guessed?' "'Wait till to I'll tell you everything to-morrow.' "'Tomorrow?' said Bill, in great disappointment. "'Well, I'll tell you one thing to-night, if you'll promise not to ask any more questions. But you probably know it already.' "'What is it?' only that Mark Ablett did not kill his brother. "'And Cayley did?' "'That's another question, Bill. However, the answer is that Cayley didn't either.' "'Then who on earth?' "'Have some more beer,' said Antony with a smile, and Bill had to be content with that. They were early to bed that evening, for both of them were tired. Bill slept loudly and defiantly, but Antony lay awake wondering. What was happening at the Red House now? Perhaps he would hear in the morning. Perhaps he would get a letter. He went over the whole story again from the beginning. Was there any possibility of a mistake? What would the police do? Would they ever find out? Ought he to have told them? Well, let them find out. It was their job. Surely he couldn't have made a mistake this time. No good wondering now. He would know definitely in the morning. In the morning there was a letter for him. End of chapter twenty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer. Please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Kristen Hughes The Red House Mystery by A. A. Milne Chapter 21 Cayley's Apology My dear Mr. Gillingham, I gather from your letter that you have made certain discoveries, which you may feel it your duty to communicate to the police, and that in this case my arrest on a charge of murder would inevitably follow. Why, in these circumstances, you should give me such ample warning of your intentions, I do not understand, unless it is that you are not wholly out of sympathy with me. But whether or not you sympathize, at any rate, you will want to know, and I will want you to know, the exact manner in which Ablett met his death, and the reasons which made that death necessary. If the police have to be told anything, I would rather that they too knew the whole story. They, And even you may call it murder, but by that time I shall be out of the way, let them call it what they like. I must begin by taking you back to a summer day fifteen years ago, when I was a boy of thirteen and Mark a young man of twenty five. His whole life was make believe, and just now he was pretending to be a philanthropist. He sat in our little drawing room, flicking his gloves against the back of his left hand. And my mother, good soul, thought what a noble young gentleman he was, and Philip and I, hastily washed and crammed into collars, stood in front of him, nudging each other and kicking the backs of our heels and cursing him in our hearts for having interrupted our game. He had decided to adopt one of us-kind Cousin Mark. Heaven knows why he chose me. Philip was eleven. Two years longer to wait. Perhaps that was why. Well, Mark educated me. I went to a public school and to Cambridge, and I became his secretary. Well, much more than his secretary, as your friend Beverley perhaps has told you. His land agent, his financial adviser, his courier, his. But this most of all his audience. Mark could never live alone. There must always be somebody to listen to him. I think in his heart he hoped I should be his Boswell. He told me one day that he had made me his literary executor, poor devil, and he used to write me the absurdest long letters when I was away from him, letters which I read once and then tore up. The futility of the man. It was three years ago that Philip got into trouble. He had been hurried through a cheap grammar school and into a London office, and discovered there that there was not much fun to be got in this world on two pounds a week. I had a frantic letter from him one day. "'saying that he must have a hundred at once or he would be ruined. "'And I went to Mark for the money. "'Only to borrow it, you understand. "'He gave me a good salary, and I could have paid it back in three months. "'But no. "'He saw nothing for himself in it, I suppose. "'No applause, no admiration. "'Philip's gratitude would be to me, not to him. "'I begged, I threatened, we argued. "'And while we were arguing, Philip was arrested.' it killed my mother. He was always her favourite. But Mark, as usual, got his satisfaction out of it. He preened himself on his judgment of character in having chosen me and not Philip twelve years before. Later on I apologised to Mark for the reckless things I had said to him. And he played the part of a magnanimous gentleman with his accustomed skill. But, though outwardly we were as before to each other, from that day forward—' though his vanity would never let him see it. I was his bitterest enemy. If that had been all, I wonder if I should have killed him. To live on terms of intimate friendship with a man whom you hate is dangerous work for your friend. Because of his belief in me as his admiring and grateful protege, and his belief in himself as my benefactor, he was now utterly in my power. I could take my time and choose my opportunity." Perhaps I should not have killed him, but I had sworn to have my revenge, and there he was, poor vain fool, at my mercy. I was in no hurry. Two years later, I had to reconsider my position, for my revenge was being taken out of my hands. Mark began to drink. Could I have stopped him? I don't think so, but to my immense surprise, I found myself trying to. Instinct perhaps getting the better of reason? Or did I reason it out and tell myself that, if he drank himself to death, I should lose my revenge? Upon my word, I cannot tell you, but for whatever motive, I did genuinely want to stop it. Drinking is such a beastly thing, anyhow. I could not stop him, but I kept him within certain bounds, so that nobody but myself knew his secret. Yes, I kept him outwardly decent and perhaps now I was becoming like the cannibal who keeps his victim in good condition for his own ends. I used to gloat over Mark, thinking how utterly he was mine to ruin as I pleased. Financially, morally, whatever way would give me most satisfaction. I had but to take my hand away from him, and he sank. But again, I was in no hurry. Then he killed himself. That futile little drunkard, eaten up with his own selfishness and vanity, offered his beastliness to the truest and purest woman on this earth. You have seen her, Mr. Gillingham, but you never knew Mark Ablett. Even if he had not been a drunkard, there was no chance for her of happiness with him. I had known him for many years, but never once had I seen him moved by any generous emotion. To have lived with that shriveled little soul would have been hell for her, and a thousand times worse hell when he began to drink. So he had to be killed. I was the only one left to protect her, for her mother was in league with Mark to bring about her ruin. I would have shot him openly for her sake, and with what gladness, but I had no mind to sacrifice myself needlessly. He was in my power. I could persuade him to almost anything by flattery. Surely it would not be difficult to give his death the appearance of an accident. I need not take up your time by telling you of the many plans I made and rejected. For some days I inclined towards an unfortunate boating accident in the pond. Mark, a very indifferent swimmer, myself almost exhausted in a gallant attempt to hold him up. And then he himself gave me the idea. He and Miss Norris between them— and so put himself in my hands, without risk of discovery. I should have said, had you not discovered me. We were talking about ghosts. Mark had been even more vain, pompous, and absurd than usual. And I could see that Miss Norris was irritated by it. After dinner she suggested dressing up as a ghost and frightening him. I thought it my duty to warn her that Mark took any joke against himself badly but she was determined to do it. I gave way reluctantly. Reluctantly, also, I told her the secret of the passage. There is an underground passage from the library to the Bowling Green. You should exercise your ingenuity, Mr. Gillingham, in trying to discover it. Mark came upon it by accident a year ago. It was a godsend to him. He could drink there in greater secrecy. But he had to tell me about it. He wanted an audience even for his vices. I told Miss Norris then because it was necessary for my plan that Mark should be thoroughly frightened. Without the passage she could never have gotten close enough to the bowling green to alarm him properly. But as I arranged it with her, she made the most effective appearance, and Mark was in just the state of rage and vindictiveness which I required. Miss Norris, you understand, is a professional actress. I need not say that to her I appeared to be animated by no other feeling than a boyish desire to bring off a good joke—a joke directed as much against the others as against Mark. He came to me that night as I expected, still quivering with indignation. Miss Norris must never be asked to the house again. I was to make a special note of it never again. It was outrageous. Had he not a reputation as a host to keep up, he would have packed her off next morning. As it was, she could stay. Hospitality demanded it. But never again would she come to the Red House. He was absolutely determined about that. I was to make a special note of it. I comforted him I soothed down his ruffled feathers. She had behaved very badly, but he was quite right. He must try not to show how much he disapproved of her. And, of course, she would never come again." that was obvious. And then, suddenly, I began to laugh. He looked up at me indignantly. "'Is there a joke?' he said coldly. I laughed gently again. "'I was just thinking,' I said, "'that it would be rather amusing if you, well, had your revenge.' "'My revenge? How do you mean?' "'Well, paid her back in her own coin.' Do you mean try and frighten her?' "'No, no, but dressed up and pull her leg a bit. Made her look a fool in front of the others.' I laughed to myself again. "'Serve her jolly well right.' He jumped up excitedly. "'By Jove, Kay!' he cried. "'If I could! How? You must think of a way.' "'I don't know if Beverly has told you about Mark's acting. He was an amateur of all the arts.' and vain of his little talents. But as an actor he seemed to himself most wonderful. Certainly he had some ability for the stage, so long as he had the stage to himself and was playing to an admiring audience. As a professional actor in a small part he would have been hopeless. As an amateur playing the leading part, he deserved all that the local papers had ever said about him. So the idea of giving us a private performance, directed against a professional actress who had made fun of him, "'appealed equally to his vanity and his desire for retaliation. "'If he, Mark Ablett, by his wonderful acting, "'could make Ruth Norris look a fool in front of the others, "'could take her in and then join in the laugh at her afterwards, "'he would indeed have had worthy revenge. "'It strikes you as childish, Mr. Gillingham? "'Ah, you never knew Mark Ablett.' "'How, Kay, how?' "'He said eagerly. "'Well, I haven't really thought it out,' I protested. "'It was just an idea.' He began to think it out for himself. "'I might pretend to be a manager, come down to see her. "'But I suppose she knows them all. "'What about an interview?' "'It's going to be difficult,' I said thoughtfully. "'You've got rather a characteristic face, you know, and your beard.' "'I'd shave it off,' he snapped. "'My dear Mark!' He looked away and mumbled. I've been thinking of taking it off anyhow, and besides, if I'm going to do the thing, I'm going to do it properly. Yes, you always were an artist, I said, looking at him admiringly. He purred. To be called an artist was what he longed for most. Now I knew that I had him. All the same, I went on, even without your beard and moustache, you might be recognizable. Unless, of course, I broke off. Unless what? You pretend to be Robert. I began to laugh to myself again. By Jove, I said, that's not a bad idea. Pretend to be Robert, the wastrel brother, and make yourself objectionable to Miss Norris. Borrow money from her and that sort of thing. He looked at me with his bright little eyes, nodding eagerly. Robert, he said, yes, how shall we work it? There was really a Robert, mr Gillingham, as I have no doubt you and the Inspector both discovered, and he was a wastrel, and he went to Australia; but he never came to the Red House on Tuesday afternoon; he couldn't have, because he died unlamented three years ago. But there was nobody who knew this save Mark and myself, for Mark was the only one of his family left, his sister having died last year, though I doubt anyhow if she knew whether Robert was alive or dead. He was not talked about. For the next two days Mark and I worked out our plans. You understand by now that our aims were not identical. Mark's endeavour was that his deception should last for, say, a couple of hours. Mine was that it should go to the grave with him. He had only to deceive Miss Norris and the other guests. I had to deceive the world. When he was dressed up as Robert, I was going to kill him. Robert would then be dead. Mark, of course, missing. What could anybody think but that Mark had killed Robert? But you see how important it was for Mark to enter fully into this latest and last impersonation. Half-measures would be fatal. "'You will say that it was impossible to do the thing thoroughly enough. I answer again that you never knew Mark. He was being what he wished most to be—an artist.' No Othello ever blackened himself all over with such enthusiasm as did Mark. His beard was going anyhow. Possibly a chance remark of Miss Norbury's helped here. She did not like beards. But it was important for me that the dead man's hands should not be the hands of a manicured gentleman. Five minutes playing upon the vanity of the artist settled his hands. He let the nails grow and then cut them raggedly. Miss Norris would notice your hands at once, I had said, besides, as an artist. So with his underclothes. It was hardly necessary to warn him that his pants might show above the edge of his socks. As an artist he had already decided upon Robertian pants. I bought them and other things in London for him. Even if I had not cut out all trace of the maker's name, he would instinctively have done it as an Australian and an artist. He could not have had an East London address on his underclothes. Yes, we were doing the thing thoroughly, both of us. He as an artist, I as a—well, you may say murderer, if you like. I shall not mind now. Our plans were settled. I went to London on the Monday and wrote him a letter from Robert, the artistic touch again. I also bought a revolver— On the Tuesday morning he announced the arrival of Robert at the breakfast-table. Robert was now alive. We had six witnesses to prove it—six witnesses who knew that he was coming that afternoon. Our private plan was that Robert should present himself at three o'clock, in readiness for the return of the golfing party shortly afterwards. The maid would go to look for Mark, and, having failed to find him, come back to the office to find me having entertained Robert in Mark's absence. I would explain that Mark must have gone out somewhere, and would myself introduce the wastrel brother to the tea-table. Mark's absence would not excite any comment, for it would be generally felt—indeed, Robert would suggest it—that he had been afraid of meeting his brother. Then Robert would make himself amusingly offensive to the guests, particularly, of course, Miss Norris, until he thought that the joke had gone far enough. That was our private plan. Perhaps I should say that it was Mark's private plan. My own was different. The announcement at breakfast went well. After the golfing party had gone, we had the morning in which to complete our arrangements. What I was chiefly concerned about was to establish as completely as possible the identity of Robert. For this reason I suggested to Mark that when dressed he should go out by the secret passage to the bowling green and come back by the drive. "'taking care to enter into conversation with the lodge-keeper. "'In this way I would have two more witnesses of Robert's arrival. first, the lodgekeeper, and secondly one of the gardeners, "'whom I would have working on the front lawn. "'Mark, of course, was willing enough. "'He could practice his Australian accent on the lodge-keeper. "'It was really amusing to see how readily he fell into every suggestion which I made. "'Never was a killing more carefully planned by its victim.' He changed into Robert's clothes in the office bedroom. This was the safest way for both of us. When he was ready, he called me in and I inspected him. It was extraordinary how well he looked the part. I supposed that the signs of his dissipation had already marked themselves on his face, but had been concealed hitherto by his moustache and beard. For now that he was clean-shaven, they lay open to the world from which we had so carefully hidden them and he was indeed the wastrel which he was pretending to be. "'By Jove, you're wonderful,' I said. He smirked and called my attention to the various artistic touches which I might have missed. "'Wonderful,' I said to myself again. "'Nobody could possibly guess.' I peered into the hall. It was empty. We hurried across to the library. He got into the passage and made off. I went back to the bedroom. "'collected all his discarded clothes, did them up in a bundle, and returned with them to the passage. Then I sat down in the hall and waited. You heard the evidence of Stevens, the maid. As soon as she was on the way to the temple in search of Mark, I stepped into the office. My hand was in my side pocket, and in my hand was the revolver. He began at once in his character of Robert, some rigmarole about working his passage over from Australia a little private performance for my edification. Then, in his natural voice, gloating over his well-planned retaliation on Miss Norris, he burst out, "'It's my turn now. You wait!' It was this which Elsie heard. She had no business to be there, and she might have ruined everything. But as it turned out, it was the luckiest thing which could have happened. For it was the one piece of evidence which I wanted— evidence other than my own that Mark and Robert were in the room together. I said nothing. I was not going to take the risk of being heard to speak in that room. I just smiled at the poor little fool, and took out my revolver and shot him. Then I went back into the library and waited, just as I said in my evidence. "'Can you imagine, Mr. Gillingham, the shock which your sudden appearance gave me?' CAN YOU IMAGINE THE FEELINGS OF A MURDERER WHO HAS, AS HE THINKS, PLANNED FOR EVERY POSSIBILITY, AND IS THEN CONFRONTED SUDDENLY WITH AN UTTERLY NEW PROBLEM? WHAT DIFFERENCE WOULD YOUR COMING MAKE? I DIDN'T KNOW. PERHAPS NONE. PERHAPS ALL. AND I HAD FORGOTTEN TO OPEN THE WINDOW. I DON'T KNOW WHETHER YOU WILL THINK MY PLAN FOR KILLING MARK A CLEVER ONE. PERHAPS NOT. "'But if I do deserve any praise in the matter, I think I deserve it for the way I pulled myself together in the face of the unexpected catastrophe of your arrival. Yes, I got a window open, Mr. Gillingham, under your very nose—the right window, too, you were kind enough to say—and the keys. Yes, that was clever of you. But I think I was cleverer. I deceived you over the keys, Mr. Gillingham.' as I learnt when I took the liberty of listening to a conversation on the bowling green between you and your friend Beverley. Where was I? Ah, you must have a look for that secret passage, Mr. Gillingham. But what am I saying? Did I deceive you at all? You have found out the secret, that Robert was Mark. And that is all that matters. How have you found out? I shall never know. Where did I go wrong?' Perhaps you have been deceiving me all the time. Perhaps you knew about the keys, about the window, even about the secret passage. You are a clever man, Mr. Gillingham. I had Mark's clothes on my hands. I might have left them in the passage. But the secret of the passage was out now. Miss Norris knew it. That was the weak point of my plan, perhaps, that Miss Norris had to know it. So I hid them in the pond— the inspector having obligingly dragged it for me first. A couple of keys joined them, but I kept the revolver. Fortunate, wasn't it, Mr. Gillingham? "'I don't think that there is any more to tell you. This is a long letter, but then it is the last which I shall write. There was a time when I hoped that there might be a happy future for me. Not at the Red House. Not alone.' "'Perhaps it was never more than an idle daydream. "'For I am no more worthy of her than Mark was. "'But I could have made her happy, Mr. Gillingham. "'God, how I would have worked to make her happy. "'But now that is impossible. "'To offer her the hand of a murderer would be as bad "'as to offer her the hand of a drunkard. "'And Mark died for that. "'I saw her this morning. "'She was very sweet.' It is a difficult world to understand. Well, well, we are all gone now—the Abletts and the Cayleys. I wonder what old Grandfather Cayley thinks of it all. Perhaps it is as well that we have died out. Not that there was anything wrong with Sarah except her temper. And she had the Ablet nose. You can't do much with that. I'm glad she left no children. Goodbye, bye Mr. Gillingham. I'm sorry that your stay with us was not of a pleasanter nature, but you understand the difficulties in which I was placed. Don't let Bill think too badly of me. He is a good fellow. Look after him. He will be surprised. The young are always surprised. And thank you for letting me end my own way. I expect you did sympathize a little, you know. We might have been friends in another world, you and I. And I and she." Tell her what you like. Everything or nothing. You will know what is best. Good-bye, Mr. Gillingham. Matthew Cayley I am lonely tonight without Mark. That's funny, isn't it? End of chapter 21 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Kristen Hughes. The Red House Mystery by A. A. Milne. Chapter 22. Mr. Beverley Moves On. Good Lord! said Bill as he put down the letter. I thought you'd say that murmured Antony. Tony, do you mean to say that you knew all this? I guessed some of it. I didn't quite know all of it, of course. Good lord, said Bill again, and returned to the letter. In a moment he was looking up again. What did you write to him? Was that last night after I'd gone into Stanton? Yes. What did you say? That you discovered that Mark was Robert? "'Yes. At least I said that this morning I should probably telegraph to Mr. Cartwright of Wimpole Street, and ask him to—' Bill burst in eagerly at the top of the sentence. "'Yes, now what was that all about? You were so damned Sherlocky yesterday all of a sudden. We'd been doing the thing together all the time, and you'd been telling me everything. And then suddenly you become very mysterious and private and talk enigmatically—is that the word?—about dentists and swimming and the plough and horses and—' Well, what was it all about? You simply vanished out of sight. I didn't know what on earth we were talking about. Antony laughed and apologized. Sorry, Bill. I felt like that suddenly. Just for the last half hour. Just to end up with. I'll tell you everything now. Not that there is anything to tell, really. It seems so easy when you know it. So obvious. About Mr. Cartwright of Wimpole Street. Of course, he was just to identify the body. But whatever made you think of a dentist for that? Who could do it better? Could you have done it? How could you? You'd never gone bathing with Mark. You'd never seen him stripped. He didn't swim. Could his doctor do it? Not unless he'd had some particular operation, and perhaps not then. But his dentist could at any time, always, if he had been to his dentist fairly often. "'Hence, Mr. Cartwright of Wimpole Street.' "'Bill nodded thoughtfully and went back again to the letter. "'I see. And you told Cayley that you were telegraphing to Cartwright to identify the body?' "'Yes. And then, of course, it was all up for him. Once we knew that Robert was Mark, we knew everything. "'How did you know?' "'Antony got up from the breakfast-table and began to fill his pipe. "'I'm not sure that I can say, Bill—' You know those problems in algebra where you say, let X be the answer, and then you work it out and find what X is? Well, that's one way. And another way, which they never give you any marks for at school, is to guess the answer. Pretend the answer is four. Well, will that satisfy the conditions of the problem? No. Then try six. And if six doesn't either, then what about five, and so on? "'Well, the inspector and the coroner and all that lot had guessed their answer, and it seemed to fit. But you and I knew it didn't really fit. There were several conditions in the problem which it didn't fit at all. So we knew that their answer was wrong, and we had to think of another—an answer which explained all the things which were puzzling us. Well, I happened to guess the right one. Got a match?' Bill handed him a box, and he lit his pipe. "'Yes, but that doesn't quite do, old boy. "'Something must have put you on to it suddenly. "'By the way, I'll have my matches back if you don't mind.' "'Antony laughed and took them out of his pocket. "'Sorry. "'Well, then, let's see if I can go through my own mind again "'and tell you how I guessed it. First of all, the clothes.' "'Yes?' "'To Cayley the clothes seemed an enormously important clue. "'I didn't quite see why.' But I did realize that to a man in Cayley's position the smallest clue would have an entirely disproportionate value. For some reason, then, Cayley attached this exaggerated importance to the clothes which Mark was wearing on that Tuesday morning-all the clothes, the inside ones as well as the outside. I didn't know why, but I did feel certain that in that case the absence of the collar was unintentional. In collecting the clothes he had overlooked the collar. Why? It was the one in the linen basket? Yes, it seemed probable. Why had Cayley put it there? The obvious answer was that he hadn't. Mark had put it there. I remembered what you told me about Mark being finicky, and having lots of clothes and so on, and I felt that he was just the sort of man who would never wear the same collar twice. He paused and then asked, Is that right, do you think? Absolutely said Bill with conviction. Well, I guessed it was. So then I began to see an X which would fit just this part of the problem—the clothes part. I saw Mark changing his clothes. I saw him instinctively dropping the collar in the linen basket, just as he had always dropped every collar he had ever taken off, but leaving the rest of the clothes on a chair in the ordinary way. And I saw Cayley collecting all the clothes afterwards all the visible clothes, and not realising that the collar wasn't there. "'Go on,' said Bill eagerly. "'Well, I felt pretty sure about that, and I wanted an explanation of it. Why had Mark changed down there instead of in his bedroom? The only answer was that the fact of his changing had to be kept secret. When did he change? The only possible time was between lunch, when he would have been seen by the servants, and the moment of Robert's arrival.' And when did Cayley collect the clothes in a bundle? Again, the only answer was before Robert's arrival. So another X was wanted, to fit those three conditions. And the answer was that a murder was intended even before Robert arrived? Yes. Well, now, it couldn't be intended on the strength of that letter, unless there was very much more behind the letter than we knew. Nor was it possible a murder could be intended without any more preparation than the changing into a different suit in which to escape. The thing was too childish. Also, if Robert was to be murdered, why go out of the way to announce his existence to you all, even at the cost of some trouble to mrs Norbury? What did it all mean? I didn't know, but I began to feel now that Robert was an incident only, that the plot was a plot of Cayley's against Mark either to get him to kill his brother, or to get his brother to kill him, and that for some inexplicable reason Mark seemed to be lending himself to the plot. He was silent for a little, and then said, almost to himself, I had seen the empty brandy-bottles in that cupboard. "'You never said anything about them,' complained Bill. "'I only saw them afterwards. I was looking for the collar. You remember.' They came back to me afterwards. I knew how Cayley would feel about it. Poor devil." "Go on," said Bill. "Well, then, we had the inquest, and of course I noticed, and I suppose you did too, the curious fact that Robert had asked his way at the second lodge and not at the first. So I talked to Amos and Parsons. That made it more curious. Amos told me that Robert had gone out of his way to speak to him. Had called to him, in fact. Parsons told me that his wife was out in their little garden at the first lodge all the afternoon, and was certain that Robert had never come past it. He also told me that Cayley had put him on to a job in the front lawn that afternoon. So I had another guess. Robert had used the secret passage, the passage which comes out into the park between the first and second lodges. Robert, then, had been in the house it was a put-up job between Robert and Cayley. But how could Robert be there without Mark knowing? Obviously Mark knew, too. What did it all mean? "'When was this?' interrupted Bill. "'Just after the inquest—after you'd seen Amos and Parsons, of course.' "'Yes, I got up and left them, and came to look for you. I'd got back to the clothes then. Why did Mark change his clothes so secretly?' "'Disguise? But then what about his face? That was much more important than clothes. His face, his beard. He'd have to shave off his beard, and then—oh, idiot! I saw you looking at that poster. Mark acting. Mark made up. Mark disguised. Oh, priceless idiot! Mark was Robert. "'Matches, please.' Bill passed over the matches again, waited till Antony had relit his pipe, and then held out his hand for them just as they were going into the other's pocket. "'Yes,' said Bill thoughtfully. "'Yes. But wait a moment. What about the plough and horses?' Antony looked comically at him. "'You'll never forgive me, Bill,' he said. "'You'll never come clue-hunting with me again.' "'What do you mean?' "'Antony sighed. "'It was a fake, Watson. "'I wanted you out of the way. "'I wanted to be alone. "'I'd guessed at my ex, and I wanted to test it, "'to test it every way, by everything we discovered. "'I simply had to be alone just then. "'So,' he smiled and added, "'Well, I knew you wanted a drink.' "'You are a devil,' said Bill, staring at him. AND YOUR INTEREST WHEN I TOLD YOU THAT A WOMAN HAD BEEN STAYING THERE. WELL, IT WAS ONLY POLITE TO BE INTERESTED WHEN YOU'D TAKEN SO MUCH TROUBLE. YOU BRUTE! YOU—YOU SHERLOCK! AND THEN YOU KEEP TRYING TO STEAL MY MATCHES. WELL, GO ON. THAT'S ALL. MY EX FITTED. DID YOU GUESS Miss Norris and all that? WELL, NOT QUITE. I DIDN'T REALIZE THAT Cayley had worked for it from the beginning had put Miss Norris up to frightening mark. I thought he'd just seized the opportunity. Bill was silent for a long time. Then, puffing at his pipe, he said slowly, "'Has Cayley shot himself?' Antony shrugged his shoulders. "'Poor devil,' said Bill. "'It was decent of you to give him a chance. I'm glad you did.' "'I couldn't help liking Cayley in a kind of way, you know.' "'He's a clever devil.' If you hadn't turned up just when you did, he would never have been found out. I wonder. It was ingenious, but it's often the ingenious thing which gets found out. The awkward thing from Cayley's point of view was that, though Mark was missing, neither he nor his body could ever be found. Well, that doesn't often happen with a missing man. He generally gets discovered in the end. A professional criminal? Perhaps not. But an amateur like Mark? He might have kept the secret of how he killed Mark, but I think it would have become obvious sooner or later that he had killed him. "'Yes, there's something in that. Oh, just tell me one other thing. Why did Mark tell Miss Norbury about his imaginary brother?' "'That's puzzled me rather, too, Bill. It may be that he was just doing the Othello business, painting himself black all over. I mean, he may have been so full of his appearance as Robert—' that he had almost got to believe in Robert, and had to tell everybody. More likely, though, he felt that, having told all of you at the house, he had better tell Miss Norbury, in case she met one of you, in which case, if you mentioned the approaching arrival of Robert, she might say, Oh, I'm certain he has no brother. He would have told me if he had, and so spoil his joke. Possibly, too, Cayley put him on to it. Cayley obviously wanted as many people as possible to know about Robert. "'Are you going to tell the police?' "'Yes, I suppose they'll have to know. Cayley may have left another confession. I hope he won't give me away. You see, I've been a sort of accessory since yesterday evening, and I must go and see Miss Norbury.' "'I asked,' explained Bill, "'because I was wondering what I should say to—to Betty.' Miss Calladine. You see, she's bound to ask. "'Perhaps you won't see her again for a long, long time,' said Antony sadly. "'As a matter of fact, I happen to know that she will be at the Barrington's, and I go up there to-morrow.' "'Well, you had better tell her. You're obviously longing to. Only don't let her say anything for a day or two. I'll write to you.' oh Antony knocked the ashes out of his pipe and got up. "'The Barringtons?' he said. "'Large party?' "'Fairly, I think.' Antony smiled at his friend. "'Yes. Well, if any of them should happen to be murdered, you might send for me. I'm just getting into the swing of it. End of The Red House Mystery by A. A. Milne.